Right on. Hey, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to um, Matthew chapter 9. And uh, let's pray as we come to God's Word this morning. Father, we just thank you for your Word. Thank you, God, for your desire to speak to us this morning. I thank you, God, that more than any one of us looking, together, uh, looking forward to this time together today, uh, you've been looking forward to it, Lord, uh, to receiving worship from your people and, and to meet with us. And now as we come to this time of teaching and, and to your word, Lord, we just pray that the pages of Scripture would come alive to us that you would pierce our hearts, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And so, Jesus, we just commit this time into your hands, Lord. We ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Right on, Matthew chapter 9. Uh, the last couple weeks we've been looking specifically at Matthew chapter 8 and, and chapter 9. And these are the two chapters, of course, that, that follow the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount has been called, you know, and, and obviously is the greatest sermon ever preached on the kingdom of God. And after this incredible experience of sitting on the mountainside with Jesus, hearing him teach, hearing all the things that he was proclaiming about the kingdom of God, uh, the crowd left that time with this question in their heart, and it was this, is who is this Jesus who is this man from Galilee? Who is this man who declares all these wonderful realities about the kingdom of God? And who is instituting this new way of living? And so the gospel writer, Matthew, as we come out of the Sermon on the Mount into Matthew's chapter 8 and 9, is seeking to just demonstrate and make it clear to us as we make our way through this gospel that, that this man, Jesus, that we would ask this question about is no other than the king of the kingdom, King Jesus. And so in these two chapters, Matthew 8 and 9, that follow the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew is seeking to tell us about and demonstrate to us uh, the power of Jesus. And, and so he tells us about sp specific ways that Jesus demonstrated his power. And Matthew has a pattern. As we've been looking at this, we've seen the pattern that he's sharing it and in the way that he shares it. And it's this, that he tells nine miracle accounts and he tells three and then he interludes with a story and then he tells three more and interludes with a story. And this morning we're going to look at the final three miracles and how people were responding uh, to Jesus. And we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 9 verse 18. Last week we looked at the second group of three miracles. And one of the things that we noticed was that all of these miracles and all of these situations were affected by Jesus' word. He spoke into them and something happened. A miracle happened. Uh, he spoke and he calmed the storm. He spoke a word, go, and the two men were set free from the, the demons that possessed them. He, he spoke a word and at his word the paralytic was set free from sin and healed from paralysis. These next three miracles that we're going to look at this morning are, are different in the way that Jesus acts because each one of these miracles, people are affected by the touch of Jesus or by touching Jesus. He doesn't say anything. It's about his touch, the power of his touch. And the first miracle is really, as we're going to see, it's, it's two stories that are intertwined. It's two different miracles, but it's one story. And so we're counting as just one, the healing of Jairus' 
daughter and the woman with the, with the bloodletting issue. And she'll, so let's check it out. Matthew chapter 18. It says this. Or Ma sorry, Matthew 9 verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. The raising of the dead. <laughs> During the, the ministry of Jesus, the different gospel writers tell us about and, and, and each one of them tells at least one of the stories of three people that were raised from the dead. You've, you've got this little girl, Jairus' daughter. She's 12 years old, the other gospels tell us. She's just passed from the dead. There's the raising of the widow's son that, from the town of Nain where, um, where Jesus met the funeral procession and he raised the young man from the dead. And then, of course, there's the story of Lazarus who had been buried and placed in a tomb and his body was already seen decay after four days of burial and Jesus uh, called him forth from the grave. We read here in, in verse 18 that it says that while Jesus was saying these things, saying what things? Well, Jesus was still at the, the tax collector's house. He was at Matthew's house. He was hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. Answering the questions of the Pharisees, answering the question of the disciples of John. And as the other gospels indicate, this man who came to him and fell down on his knees humbly before Jesus was a man by the name of Jairus who asked Jesus to come and heal his daughter. Now, in this story, Ma Matthew gives the most abbreviated account out of all the gospel accounts of this story. Mark and, and Luke go into much more detail and they tell us that the girl wasn't yet dead, but she was at the point of death. Matthew just is saying she's as good as dead when the man came to Jesus. Now Jairus, um, we read from the scriptures, was a ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. He was, he was a local man with influence. He was a local man with importance. He had position in the community. Uh, he, had, he had respect in the community. But whatever he had in regards to, you know, his, his pride... His position, uh, he's quick to humble himself at the feet of Jesus at the thought of his little girl passing away. I mean, with his little girl sick and, and ill, what, what, is, what is pride and position? What is reputation in the community as the ruler of the synagogue? What does is, what is that standing matter when your, point is, when your child is at the point of death? I mean, we can all understand that. And the other Gospels tell us actually that she was 12 years old. 12 years old. The joy of his life. I bet she looked like her mother. 
just as beautiful, and I bet she had her daddy wrapped around her finger. I mean, you got to get your head in the, in the story a little bit, and I, I bet she had him wrapped around his finger, and he loved every minute of it like every dad does with his little girl. And then one day, the sickness, sickness came into their house, and the joy of his life lay uh, there dying, close to lifelessness, and Jairus knew all the signs. She was going to die unless there was a miracle, and so he went and he sought out Jesus. And so if you can get the scene in your head, Jesus is probably reclining at the table in Matthew's house, sitting around with the sinners and the tax collectors and... This man arrives distraught and asking for help. And you know, I love this picture because it's, it's good to know that the cry for help is never an interruption to Jesus. Your cry for help is never an interruption. And as soon as word came to Jesus, he all at once left the place of feasting to go and leave and head to the house of mourning where there was this need. The man said, Come. Lay your hand on her, Jesus. Touch her. Touch her with your power, and I know that she'll live. And Jesus got up, and the crowd joined him, the house joined him, and they went as a procession to the house of Jairus. And verse 20 tells us this. And behold, it means stop, think about this. A woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Uh, I imagine that as this woman made her way to Jesus, she came trembling. Twelve years she had suffered. It's interesting because that's the same age, same span of time as the daughter of Jairus. She was 12 years old and this woman had suffered for 12 years. During the 12 years that the house of Jairus had been enjoying the presence of a little girl, all the joy and all the gladness and all the fun that a little girl brings to a household, during all those years that Jairus was met at the door by his little girl when he was coming home from a long day of work and he was ready for the couch and she begged him to play, he'd muster up the energy to spend time with his child and do what she wanted. And while their home was experiencing all this joy, this woman was experiencing a parallel 12 years that was a nightmare right in the same community, in the same neighborhood. 12 years that paralleled one another but are polar opposites in terms of experience. And we know that sometimes the, sometimes the, the partition between joy and suffering is very thin. There's joy in our house and right next door somebody could be suffering or vice versa. And this woman's 12 years were spent battling this incurable hemorrhage. The suffering had broken her. Her, her hopes for a cure had disappointed her. The other gospels tell us that she had spent all that she had in search of a cure the other Gospels tell us that she had suffered much at the hands of many physicians in search of a cure, and now she was reduced to poverty. Her, her disease left her ceremonially unclean. Everything and everyone that she touched was rendered unclean. You know, when you, if we think back to the, the first message in the series, the first, 
The first message in this series, we looked at the leper and Jesus' healing of the leper. Well, this woman's plight was not much different than that of a leper. Social status was gone. Family care, financial security was gone. Hope of religious comfort was gone. She was, couldn't enter the house of God because she was ceremonially unclean. She, she had lost everything. And for that matter, you know, as I read this, I can understand why she decided I'll quietly make my way through the crowd and touch the hem of his garment in hope of being cured. I'll, I'll secretly sneak through the crowd with that hope that this touch might result in my healing because how else am I going to get to Jesus? I'm unclean. And if you think about it, as she wove her way through the crowd, the other gospels again tell us that Jesus was being pressed. As she wove her way through the crowd, uh, they were unaware that as this woman brushed up against them, as she touched them, that she was making all those individuals ceremonially unclean in that crowd. As she touched them, if they had only known. And, and I think about it here, and I, and I think, you know, you know, we might even say maybe her theology wasn't perfect. You know, she thinks if I just touch the hem of his garment, what, what is that? It's kind of superstitious in my mind. But she had an unquestionable confidence in Christ's power. And she had a desire that he heal her. And touching the hem of the garment may have been uh, superstitious. But I, I imagine for her coming forward to Jesus in front of a crowd to say, I have this physical issue going on was... Not the thing, kind of thing that you'd like to talk about publicly in front of other people. And so she reasoned, I'll sneak in. I'll touch the hem of his garment. And then I'll sneak out the same way that I came. And when she did so, she was instantly healed. When she touched the hem of the garment. And, and Jesus, sensing that power had gone out from him, turned around and he asked who is it that touched me? And, and you know the story that the disciples, the other gospels tell us that the disciples mocked him. What do you mean who touched you? You're being pressed by the crowd. Of course people are touching you. But Jesus continued to ask because he knew that power had gone out from him. And so this, though she had been trying to get lost in the crowd, in her fear, with dismay on her face, she identified herself. And then Jesus spoke these tender words to her. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Take heart, daughter. The, the tender words of a father. See, Jesus had a lesson for this woman in her healing. A lesson that would quell her fears and that would quiet the anxieties and worries of her heart. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. See, this is actually the only person in all the gospel accounts that Jesus calls his daughter. And it's a beautiful picture for us that we discover that in all the years that Jairus had been loving his 12-year-old daughter, in the same parallel way the Lord had been loving this woman, his daughter. He had seen her pain. He had seen her suffering. And you know, I kind of think faith, in it, and she came to Jesus in faith. Sometimes faith is like a little girl putting her hand into her father's hand, taking hold of her father's hand. 
And obviously, faith does not heal us, but faith brings us to the hand that does heal us. And in faith, she reached out to be healed. And what she didn't know was that her father was taking hold of her. And at the touch of Jesus, she was healed. And Jesus knew that power had gone out from him. You know, I, I think about Jesus and you got to think that sometimes it's like the universe is pressing on him, not just the crowd. The weight of the universe is on him and yet what he feels is the touch of faith and he answers it when his children come to him in faith. It's not the outward contact with Jesus that saves us, but, that, but it's faith that trusts in the saving work of Jesus. It was at this point that messengers came from the house of Jairus to say, don't bother the teacher any longer. Your little girl's gone. She's passed away. And I imagine that Jairus' heart must have sunk because they were so close, you know. If only Jesus hadn't stopped. If only this woman hadn't interrupted the whole procession on the way to his house, then, then maybe his daughter would have lived. And we pick it up in verse 23, and it says this, And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So when Jesus arrives, when Jairus arrives back home, uh, the household's already lamenting. And Jesus takes it all in and he says this, go away. Don't you love that? Just uh, some of the other gospel, uh, some other versions say this, that he said, get out. Get out of here. The girl's not dead, but she's sleeping. And, and they knew she was dead. And it's amazing how quickly their mourning turned to laughter. Not, not the laughter of joy, but the laughter of mocking. What are you talking about? She's sleeping. She's dead. They knew that death was real, and they, they knew that you don't just wake up from death. But Jesus said, the girl is not dead, but she's sleeping. And that saying has, has special application for this girl, but it has an application for us as well, because it teaches us, as believers, the truth about death. For those that are in Christ, the blow of death is softened by this word sleep. She's not dead. She's asleep. She's sleeping. And we know that in the New Testament, when it speaks of those who, have, who are in faith in Christ and who have passed from this life into the next, it does not tell us that they are dead, but simply that they sleep. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in John 10.10. He said, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And see, we don't say that a believer has died, but that they sleep. Because in Christ, death has lost its sting. To refer to death is, to refer to the death of a believer is, as sleep is sanctioned by Jesus. It's right theology to say they sleep. And for those in Christ, sleep simply means this, that they've ceased in their connection to this world, that they're no longer dependent upon that body, that there has been a separation of body and soul, that the body sleeps, but the soul is in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The soul doesn't sleep. Doesn't get tired. The soul that God has given us, the spirit that he's put in us, is engineered for eternity. It's made in the image of God. And we think about the times that, that Jesus raised the dead. This little girl, the, the widow's son from Nain. Lazarus. You know, Jesus never showed up at a funeral and preached a message. He raised them from the dead. Every time he met a dead person. And he said, little girl, I say to you, arise. He touched her, but he, but he said, little girl, I say to you, you arise. To the, to the young man, the widow's son, he said, young man, I say to you, arise. To Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come out. And what a hope we have. That one day these mortal bodies, that one day they will sleep in the dust, but one day Jesus will call them up from the dust. That the mortal body will be raised immortal at the words of him who is immortal. You know, the sun came up this morning and we rose from our sleep. It's a lesson about Jesus, the son of God. The same principle is true for the believer who, is, who sleeps. There is a promise of waking when the son, S-O-N, comes. They'll be raised from the dead. And those who sleep in the dust will wake at the sound of his voice. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Because everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. They only sleep. And so, you know, we don't use, we don't use the word death. When we speak of those who are in Christ, when tears flow, they can flow less bitterly because... They sleep in Christ. Their bodies are resting, but they are not. They are in his presence. And so when Jesus is there in the house and the crowd had finally been put outside, well, we read in verse 25, but when the crowd had been put outside, he went and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report went out throughout all that district. And so Matthew emphasizes for us the power of Christ touch or touching Jesus. The woman touched the hem of his garment. Jesus took the hand of the little, of the little girl. And I just think, what, what a blessing to wake up to the sound of Jesus' voice. To be woken by his touch and to find our hand in his hand. Then the second miracle, miracle account is this, verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And he entered the house. When he had entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and they spread his fame through all that district. Two blind men following Jesus. They, they follow him from the house of Jairus. It says back to the other house. So, well, I would assume that it's back to probably Peter's house where Jesus was staying. The house of Simon Peter. And all the way as Jesus made this trek across town, these two blind men followed and they, they cried out, Have mercy on us, son of David. 
And as they called to Jesus for mercy, they gave this title to him. They called him by this title, Son of David. It's a messianic title that, as they were saying that, they were emphasizing their belief. Jesus, we believe you are the Messiah. You are the one whom God has sent to us. And so you can just see the scene going back through town as Jesus is walking back across town. These men are following and they're crying out, have mercy on a son of David. And, and I wonder why Jesus, you know, didn't turn around and deal with this issue right away. Why they had to follow at that distance before he turned to touch them. And, and I think it might be that because of the fact that though these men were blind physically, they could see something spiritually that the crowd had not yet seen. And that was the identity of Jesus. That he was the son of David. That he was the Messiah. So Jesus let them cry out all the way across town. That's right, keep saying it. I'm the Messiah, the son of David. Let the crowd hear it. Yeah, I'm reminded, I, I love Jeremiah 3, verse 31 to 33. It says this. Sorry, it's from Lamentations. But Jeremiah said it, said it in Lamentations. He said, for the Lord won't cast off forever. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And it may have seemed like Jesus was casting these men off. It may have seemed as though he was Ignoring him, but as they ignoring them, but as they waited for his touch, as they continued to proclaim their faith in him as the Messiah, the Son of David, Jesus let these physically blind men proclaim the truth to those that were spiritually blind around them. That he was the Messiah. And the blindness of the multitude really was greater than the blindness of these two men. Otherwise, the entire crowd would have been calling Jesus the son of David after he raised the dead. And so the affliction of their blindness was for the good of the crowd. The cry of their voice and the delay of Jesus' healing was for the good of those around them. Those who could watch but could not see. Maybe they would hear the voice of these two men. And you know, sometimes we wonder at the delays of God. But in this miracle, we, we see that there was a blessing to others in the midst of God's delay. That there was a message being proclaimed to others in the midst of their affliction. And verse 28 says, that when he entered the house, the blind man came to him and said, Jesus, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. You know, at last they found their way to the house with Jesus. I don't know how they got there. Two blind men. If there was someone leading them, how it went. But finally they came inside. See, no longer were they following from a distance. I love this picture. They came inside the house with Jesus. They came into close proximity to him. They established a close relationship with him to the point that he could reach out and physically touch them with his hand. And he proclaimed, here he implied his willingness to heal and he asked the question about their faith. Do you believe that I can do this? 
And they said, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You know, faith doesn't need many syllables. Faith doesn't need lots of words and long, drawn-out, you know, confessions. Faith just says, yes, Lord. I believe. And at those words, the hand that had taken hold of the, the little girl's hand touched their eyes. And Jesus said, according to your faith, be done. And their eyes were opened, verse 30. I think about these men. They're, they're, they went through, you know, this weight of following Jesus, almost like a testing. And they had to continue to trust Jesus. And then they experienced his touch. And sometimes you and I have that same experience of testing and trusting and finally having his touch. He told them to be quiet. These men that had shouted, calling him, proclaiming him the son of David. And they, they couldn't rein in their tongues after he healed them. They couldn't keep quiet about what God had done for them, even though Jesus commanded them to be quiet. You know, I think about these guys. They, they, I imagine that they thought that they were honoring Jesus by telling everyone what he had done for them. But they actually weren't being obedient to the very thing that he had commanded them. You know, natural impulse was to tell others. But truer and greater gratitude would have been this, to obey what Jesus told them. And you know, it's true for us in this sense. You know, we, we often say we want to honor Jesus. Jesus, I want to honor you. Well, you know, the fact is, is we honor Jesus most not by, by taking and making up our own way of honoring him, but by acting, rather, but by acting in obedience to the things that his word declares. If we want to honor him, then we should obey his word. These men, I believe they wanted to honor him, but they did it about their own way, and it, and it caused difficulty for Jesus in the future, where, where he could travel and whereabouts he could go. So that's the second miracle, the touch of Jesus. And then we see the third one. It's this, in verse 32. As they were going away... Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So here's this man. He's, he's brought to the house. I, I bet he came because of the things that were being proclaimed by the blind men. And he was unable to speak because of a demon that possessed him. He didn't have some sort of physical disability or deficiency that caused him to be mute. It was because there was an evil spirit that was in him that had seized him, that held him in bondage. You know, demons are real. Demon possession is real. It seems that in our time, you know, we, we don't we don't hear many explanations for physical problems like this. The physical problem was because of spirit oppression or demon possession. Our, our culture doesn't do that. We're even nervous to say things like that in the church. You know, we often give explanations that are, you know, non-supernatural. They're physical problems. It's a psychological problem. That's, a, you know, what that person has going on. Our culture is kind of entertained by the idea of demons. We watch movie, maybe, you know, people are into horror movies and 
these sorts of things, or they read about it in fiction, but they don't relate that it possibly could be real in life. And it's real. And this man was held in bondage by this evil spirit that restrained his tongue. He could not speak. And so Jesus didn't question him or ask him for a word of faith. He went straight for the cure and he set the man free from the evil spirit. He cast it out and the man spoke. And almost stunning in the midst of, whole, of all of this, in this display of power by King Jesus over an evil spirit, is the response of the Pharisees. And you, you have to see it. It's just one simple sentence that the gospel writer gives us that the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. We talked last week about Jesus, the prince of peace. But they called him one who casts out demons by the prince of demons. I mean, this miracle that Matthew tells us was recorded to demonstrate the, the power of the king. And what do they do? They attribute his work to the devil. Unbelief. There was no faith in their many words. And so we see these three miracles demonstrating the power of King Jesus, of the power of King Jesus' Jesus's touch. And following the same pattern of three miracles and then an interlude, we come to this interlude that is just an incredible text of scripture. Let's check it out. Verse 35. So we see how people are responding to Jesus and what Jesus says. Verse 35 says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out into his harvest. What an awesome passage of scripture. Don't you love this passage of scripture? Um, we looked at these miracles this morning that demonstrate the power of King Jesus, the power of his touch. And this gospel writer, Matthew, tells us now where Jesus went and why he went and what he did. He said that Jesus went throughout all the villages and all the cities. He went, he went to the metropolitan centers, to the big places like, you know, Vancouver. He went to the scenic seaside villages like Gibson's. He visited the, the small town hick end of the road places like Seashell. <laughs> nobody was too sophisticated for Jesus, okay? You know, nobody was too small town. He, he hung out with the cultured and he hung out with the outcast. From the seats and centers of government to the little resource-based communities, all men in all places were of equal importance to him and to his message. And everywhere he went, he would proclaim and he would preach the gospel of this kingdom. 
Everyone who came to him, he would touch them and he would heal them. Healed everyone who had a need. Healing every sickness and every disease, Matthew says. What a, wow, it would have just been so awesome to be around Jesus in, in those days of ministry. But the time was coming in his ministry where there was needing to be an increase in the scope and the reach of that ministry. We're going to see this in the weeks to come as he begins to send out his disciples. And so we read here in verse 36, as Jesus begins to prepare his disciples and prepare us for the expand of the reach of the kingdom and its message and its effect on the world, that when he saw the crowds, verse 36, he had compassion on them because they were, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, Jesus was moved by the misery and the vulnerability of people. He was moved by the misery and the vulnerability of the masses. He said to his disciples, when I look out, I see people that are like sheep without a shepherd. There's no guidance in their lives. They're, they're without aim. They're without direction. They have no protection. They're lost. Those who are attempting to lead them have nothing to offer them. And the world is no different today, is it? I mean, you observe the lives of those you know and lives in the community and you see that the same description of harassed and helpless applies to our culture. Applies to our society. There's many voices that claim that they have some sort of direction or that they offer some sort of voice of guidance, but a, but a closer inspection reveals the, a, a lack of substance to their claims. People are walking and they're living in darkness. They're trying religion and they're trying attempts at self-betterment and they become dependent on, on substance to escape re reality and, and they're harassed and they're helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. They have, they have no concept that the Lord is good, that Jesus is good and that his steadfast love endures forever and that his faithfulness is to all generations. And Jesus looked out on these, on these crowds and he looks out on our world today and he has the same compassion. Je See, Jesus would meet people in their problems and he could not help himself. He had to help. He had to heal. When he was reclining at the table, he, he couldn't not listen to the call of Jairus and he went and he healed the little girl. He, he touched the woman or he healed the woman. He, he healed the mute. He, Healed those oppressed and possessed by demons. He healed the blind. From the compassion of his heart, he had to touch every need of mankind. And this is where in his power, he is making something clear to us and the gospel writer is making, trying to make something clear to us as we go through Matthew's account, and it's this, that we are to become the hands and feet of Jesus. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers, the laborers are few. The harvest is truly plentiful. 
You know, I, I don't know about you, but there's, there's no shortage of harassed, helpless people in my life, in your life, in this community. I'm not talking even in this room. The people that you know and that God has brought you in re, into relationship with, there is no shortage of those who are harassed and helpless. There is no shortage of those who need compassion. No shortage of people who are dead in sin. No lack of those who, who are unclean because of their sin and they've lost their social status. They've lost their sense of family care. They've lost their financial security. No shortage of people who are spiritually blind. There's no scarcity of men and women who are oppressed and possessed by demonic spirits. I look around the community and the people that I know and I see broken marriages and broken families and people that are living lives in bondage to addiction. And they're harassed and they're helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I think about Jesus who had compassion on those whom he saw. And all it takes is a little compassion. All it takes is a little compassion to see people with the heart of Jesus and to let the heart of Jesus grip your heart. And Jesus says this, there's no problem in the harvest. There is no problem in the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. plentiful and then he declared, the problem is the need for workers. The problem is the need for laborers. And so in verse 38, he says this, Therefore, pray. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, for Jesus, the solution to the issue of harassed and helpless people, the solution to the problem was prayer. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers out into his harvest. That we would pray. That we would be people of prayer. That we would be a church that prays. See, Jesus saw harassed and helpless people as a, as a harvest waiting to be reaped. The miseries that they were experiencing were experiencing because of living life apart for him, apart from him, set them up to receive him. And we should look at our culture and world, and world and we should say this, it's full of opportunity. As we see those who are harassed and helpless, we should not look at the culture of this world and the state of humanity and be filled with despair. I think as Christians we have this, we have this so much, we, we look around in the world and we say, oh man, it's just going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, back in the good old days. But what we should do is look and hear the words of Jesus Christ and ask him to put a sickle to the fields. To work in a culture that is ripe for the taking for the kingdom of God. And before the workers can be sent out, before Jesus can send out the 12, as we'll see in the next chapter, he says this, there is a need to pray. There is a need to pray because Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And when we look outside the walls of this place, 
we should recognize that, that what we need to see is the hand of Jesus touch people around us. And here Jesus tells us the secret to moving his hand. In all the power that we've seen in these miracles of Christ, the secret to moving his hand, Jesus tells us, is prayer. It causes the swing of the sickle. And in terms of all the responsibilities and opportunities that lie in front of us for the sake of the gospel, prayer is the best way to move the merciful hand of Jesus in a world full of harassed and helpless people. Pray for those around you. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for those that are hurting in your life. You know, maybe you, in fact, are harassed and helpless. And I would say this morning in faith, make your way to Jesus. Humble yourself before him like Jairus did. Get past the crowd and get near to Jesus as the woman did. Invite Jesus into your home. Let him drive out the mourners to wake you from the sleep. And rather than following from a distance, enter into the house of Jesus. Invite Jesus into your house. Come into close proximity with him where he can touch you. Prayer. You know, as I zoom out and in my mind and I think about chapter 8 and chapter 9 and these demonstrations of the power of Jesus that we've seen and all these miracles that he did and, and, and in summary of kind of those three different sections that we saw and I, I almost want to zoom out and remind you that after the first set of miracles we, we saw some men come to Jesus and they had the wrong idea of what it meant to follow Jesus and and he redirected them. He said, if you're going to follow me, it costs everything. It costs everything. Then, after the second set of miracles, we saw Matthew making the choice to follow Jesus. And we saw Matthew leave everything. And we learned that Jesus was the great physician, that he was the bridegroom, he had come not to sew a patch on your life and my life, but to make a new garment, not to pour new wine into something that was old and dried out, but to make our lives new. And then we see here after this third set of miracles in terms of following Jesus, that those who must, that will follow him must grow in their heart of compassion for those who are harassed and who are helpless and become people of prayer, become people of prayer. In my life, I want to see the hand of God move in the lives of people that I know. Don't you? I want to see the hand of God move in this community. And Jesus gives us the key here. It's to be people of prayer. To be people of prayer. And so let's pray this morning. I invite the worship team to come. Why don't you guys stand with me? We're going to come to the communion table this morning also. But as they come and as we get ready to come to the Lord's table, let, let's pray this morning. Jesus, Jesus, in faith right now, we just acknowledge your power. 
If your arm is not short, your strength is not too weak, that you can touch any situation, if anything has been demonstrated to us by these miracles, it's that you can touch anything. You can set a leper free. You can raise those who are paralyzed. You can set us free from sin. You raise the dead to life. You open blind eyes. You set free from evil spirits. Your arm is not too short. And so Jesus, as we follow you, we pray that we would grow in the ability to leave all behind to follow you, Jesus. We pray, Jesus, that we would grow in our heart of compassion for those who are, who are harassed and helpless. We ask, God, that you would make us a people and a church of prayer who asks you to send workers out into the fields to labor for the harvest. And Jesus, this morning I ask that you would make us those very workers, that you would send us out with the message of the kingdom on our lips to help those who are harassed and helpless. And so, Lord, this morning, um, we just draw near to you. We draw near to you, and maybe, God, today there are those here who need your touch, who need the touch of King Jesus. I pray, God, as they come near to you, that they would experience that reality. Lord, if there are those who need healing, I ask you to heal today. If there are those who need freedom from spiritual oppression today, Lord, I pray that you drive those spirits out. Drive them away, Lord. If there are those who are blind in their ability to truly lay hold of who you are, I pray, Jesus, that you would open their eyes to see that you are the Messiah, the Son of David. Jesus, we thank you for your power, and we thank you for your touch in our lives. And we ask you, Jesus, to touch this community. Send the workers out, Lord. We pray into the harvest fields. In Jesus' name, amen.